Now, would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? I just want to continue our studies in Luke's Gospel. And we come uh, to Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, the parable of the ten minas. I think it is appropriate for a New Year's sermon because it uh, causes us to refocus our efforts when it comes to the spread of the gospel. So Luke chapter 19 and verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near uh, to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business uh, until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent the delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. First came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. Uh, You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept led away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Amen. I mean, oh God will always bless the reading of his word. Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian uh, preacher, described sermon illustrations as windows in houses so that they let light into what otherwise might be a dark and, uh, and treacle-like sermon, a tedious sermon. And of course, he had a great example of that in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was Uh, an expert in his use of simile, analogy, lively, interesting illustrations drawn from everyday life. In fact, that's what the parables are. They are stories, uh, earthly stories, with heavenly meaning. Now, this morning we come to the parable of the ten minas, or as the authorized version has it, the ten pounds. Now, when the authorized version was translated back in the 17th century, one pound was a substantial amount of money. Uh, But today, it wouldn't even buy you a cup of coffee. Uh, Ten ten minas, or one mina, sorry, was equivalent to uh, four months' salary working a six-day week. So if you work that out at £8.72 per hour minimum wage, what we have here is £70,000 distributed, uh, £7,000 to each of these 10 individuals. It was a lot of money. 
But what makes this parable so interesting is that Jesus drew on current events uh, in order to make his point. He draws on the political world around him to illustrate what he's saying. And I think that's what makes this parable so unique and perhaps one of the most daring of all the parables told by Jesus. Now, what we're going to do uh, this morning, seeking to understand this uh, parable, is to view the parable from the perspective of the current events uh, into which Jesus was speaking. And for the sermon, I want you to notice six things. Now, Val English told us when we were at college, if your sermon has more than four points, don't tell them because it will weary them before you begin. But I'm being honest, breaking all homiletical rules, and I'm telling you that I have six points, but we'll move through them very quickly. The first thing I want you to notice is the uh, delay in the return of the king. Look at verse 11. That sets the context for the parable. As they, had these, uh, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they uh, supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This would be his last Passover, the final Passover. And from this uh, Passover, he would be betrayed, arrested, tried, and executed. However, in the minds of the people, there was a growing sense of messianic excitement. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom, to bring in the kingdom. There was always a heightened messianic expectation at Passover. Uh, The Jews were looking for someone to come in, the Messiah to come and establish Um, the the, the glories of the uh, reign of King David and deliver them from Roman occupation. But here, this man Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, and taught unlike anyone they had ever heard. So this heightened religious expectation was being channeled uh, into the person of Jesus. Could this be the one? Is that why he's going to Jerusalem? Is he the one who will usher in the kingdom? Is this the moment that we have looked for and longed for for centuries? Now, in response to that heightened expectation, Jesus tells this parable. In verse 12, he speaks about a man who goes to a distant country to be appointed king. Look at verse 12. He said, Therefore a noble man went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, everyone who listened to Jesus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The Roman emperors themselves refused the title of king or rex. It was forbidden. But on occasions, they allowed uh, national leaders over which the Romans reigned to adopt that title for themselves. And so, for instance, Herod was known as King Herod. He was allowed to use that title uh, by the Romans for the honor, uh, uh, as an honor for loyal service. Now, when King Herod died, his kingdom was divided between his three sons and his uh, daughter, and they were allowed to take, uh, uh, they were not allowed to take this title king. And so, one of Herod's sons set off for Rome, a distant country, to secure for himself the title of king. 
So there was a delay in his appointment as king. He had first to go to Rome to seek Roman approval. His name was Archelaus. And it seems that negotiations were prolonged and he was away a long time. His coronation, his ascension, his acclamation as king was delayed. Now, Jesus is simply saying to these people, there's going to be a delay uh, before the kingdom of God is brought in in its fullest and final form. I have to go away. I might be away for some time, but I will come back and I will establish my kingdom. And after 2,000 years, we're still waiting for the king to return. He will return because he's promised to return and he uh, always keeps his promises and we're waiting patiently for the kingdom to come. So that's the first thing. The kingdom was not imminent. It would be delayed before the final uh, uh, coronation of the king, the delay for the return of the king. The second thing I want you to notice is the responsibility given to the servants of the king. Look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business till I come. The future ruler, before he leaves, calls ten of his servants together and gives them ten minas. Remember, 7,000 pounds each in today's money. And he says, engage in business until I come. The NIV says, put this money to work until I come. The authorized version, which I like, says, occupy until I come. Again, when Archelaus left for Rome, he appointed deputies, he appointed stewards, he appointed um, managers to look after things in his absence. Now, the Lord Jesus has gone to heaven. He has been crowned king, and one day he will return to receive his kingdom. Now, until he returns, he entrusts his servants with his work in the world. Now, what do you think the ten minas represent? Well, I want you to notice that the parable is different from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. In the parable of the talents, the Matthew, uh, in Matthew's account, they uh, they receive different amounts. To one, five talents. To another, two. And to another, one. All received different amounts of money. And those talents represent the different gifts that different believers receive that are to be employed uh, in his service. But what I want you to notice here is that everyone is given the same. Everyone receives one minor. So what do these minors represent? Well, I think they represent the gospel. They represent the truth of God. They represent the Word of God. Jesus has gone away, and he will come back. And in the meantime, every professing Christian must occupy themselves by putting the gospel to work. They must engage in business until he comes. They must engage in gospel work. The Lord Jesus expects us to use our energies and expend our energy in the spreading of the gospel influence. And every Christian has that. Joe Christian receives the same deposit as Martin Luther, as John Calvin, as George Whitfield, as Martin Lloyd-Jones. Everyone has been given the gospel. And through investment and speculation, Jesus expects uh, him to put that gospel to work, to multiply the influence. 
So one person might do that through preaching. Another person might do that through mission. Another person might do that by engaging in outreach from the church. Still another by teaching Sunday school. Still others by personal witnessing. Others by supporting the work of the church by giving sacrificially. Others by prayer. Jesus doesn't specify how we are to invest, but the point is that we have to invest. We have to invest in the spread of the gospel. So, do you see what Jesus is saying? I'm going away. I'm I'm leaving you in the world, and you need to work until I return. There is only one life, and it soon will be passed, and only what's done for Jesus will last. You know, we can have so many pressures and Uh, difficulties pressing in upon us, that so many demands made of us that we push the Lord and we push His work to the very fringes of our lives, and we end up doing very little for Him. Jesus says, engage in business until I come. Be diligent, be faithful, be focused, be consecrated, be deliberate in your use of the gospel. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll walk with you in the way. I'll sing you a solo anytime, dear Lord. Just don't ask me to read the Bible or pray. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I would like to see the church grow. But don't ask me to witness, O Lord, and speak to those I don't know. I'll do what you want me to do, dear Lord. I yearn for your kingdom to thrive. I will give you my fifties and pounds, dear Lord. But please don't ask me to tithe. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say. I'm busy now, just now, with myself, dear Lord. I'll work for you some other day. We need to understand that Jesus has invested in us. He's put the gospel, uh, as Paul says, in earthen vessels. But he expects us to use that gospel, that trust that has been given to us. Just as Archelaus had left people to work for him when he was away, so Jesus has left us to work for him when he's away. The responsibility given to the citizens of the king. The delay in the return of the king. The responsibility given to the servants of the king. And the third thing I want you to notice is the opposition to the reign of the king. Look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Archelaus was very unpopular back in Judea, uh, and he was so unpopular that, uh, that there was a growing opposition to him. Uh, when he ascended the throne, he massacred 3,000 uh, people at Passover at the temple. So when he went off to Rome to secure the title, the Jews sent a delegation of 50 people after him to uh, petition Caesar that he wouldn't be allowed to uh, assume uh, the throne. When he, when they appeared, when he, Archelaus, appeared before Caesar Augustus, there were 50 that had come from Judea were there, but they were joined by 8,000 Jews from Rome. Meanwhile, back in Judea, there was growing opposition to his appointment with people trying to undermine him. Now, Jesus is making a very simple point. When the cat's away, the mice will play. When the king's away, the enemies of the king will exert themselves and will oppose the king. 
In other words, the king and his kingdom will be opposed and rejected. There will be enemies who will seek to undermine the authority of the king. We do not want this man, verse 14, to reign over us. In the absence of Jesus, there would be those who would oppose Uh, There will be those who oppose the reign of King Jesus. There are enemies of him. The enemies uh, of the servants. And so we mustn't be surprised when we face rejection, hostility, even persecution in this world. Because this world, uh, in this world, you have enemies of the king. Maybe by ridicule, it may be by marginalization, it may be by discrimination, it may be by rejection, it even may be by persecution. But in this world, Jesus himself said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. We need to understand that. Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Do you feel rejected? Do you feel marginalized? Do you feel persecuted? Don't be surprised. Because the king has enemies. And while the king's away, those enemies will oppose his work and his reign. Who was more innocent than the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet, who was more persecuted than the Lord Jesus Christ? This world never changes. It's always a hostile environment for true believers in King Jesus, for the servants of the King. William Henriksen writes, Scars are the price which every believer pays for his loyalty to the King. The opposition to the reign of the King. So we have the delay in the return of the King, the responsibility given to the servants of the King, the opposition to the reign of the King. Fourthly, the reward received for service to the king. Just look at verses 15 through to 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know that they, uh, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said, and you are to be over five cities. When Archelaus returned to Judea, those servants and politicians that had remained faithful uh, to him, loyal to him, proved their loyalty to him, he handsomely rewarded. Some were promoted and given positions of power and influence. Some were given cities to rule over, and others were given office within the royal administration. And that's the thought that Jesus develops here. The first servant had put his mina to work and have heard and had earned ten more. So he is rewarded by taking charge of ten cities. He is congratulated and commended as a good servant. The second servant came having earned five more minas, and he is given charge over five cities. He isn't commended, interestingly enough, but he is still (coughs) rewarded. So when the king returns, he rewards those who have been faithful to him, and he rewards them in proportion to their faithfulness. Now, this is a controversial point, but bear with me. It seems to me that Jesus is teaching that there are degrees of reward in heaven. Those who have been faithful in much will be rewarded much. 
And those who have been faithful in little will be rewarded little. That interpretation seems consistent with the rest of Scripture. Jesus spoke, you remember, about laying up treasures in heaven, accumulating treasures in heaven, accumulating reward. He speaks in Luke 6 and says, your reward will be great in heaven. In fact, he says, even a glass of water given in his name has eternal uh, consequences. There are degrees of reward in heaven. You remember that wonderful verse in Revelation 14? Uh, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labors, and their works shall follow them. Our works, our deeds, our labor, our faithfulness follows us into heaven. There are various degrees of reward in heaven. I don't know about you. I don't want to be saved by the skin of my teeth. I want to hear those words, verse 17, well done, good servant. Or as in the parable of the talents, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, the nature of the reward, I don't think we can speculate on. I think the ten cities and the five cities are a reference to Archelaus and the rewards that he gave out when he came back from Rome. But whatever they are, I think we can be sure that faithfulness and fruitfulness will be rewarded in glory. So Jesus is teaching that when he returns, he will reward faithfulness, diligence, and hard work. Our efforts, our exertion in relation, remember, to the spread of the gospel which has been entrusted to us will be rewarded. The money that you gave for ministry, the sacrifices that you made for mission, the time that you took to read and pray with your children, the track that you left on the coffee table of the coffee shop before you left, the Sunday school class that you teach, the GB and BB squads that you are responsible for, the nursing homes uh, 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 to which you, you, you minister, the youth fellowship, the youth club, the uh, Thursday fellowship, all of those things, all the work that you do for the Lord will be rewarded. They are in an investment in eternity. Sometimes we feel a little unspiritual uh, to be motivated by the thought of rewards. But the Lord Jesus himself holds up the promise of reward as a motivation for involvement in his work. When Jesus comes, he will reward faithfulness. So here in this parable, we see the delay of the return of the king, the responsibility given to the servants of the king, the opposition to the reign of the king, the reward received for service to the king, and then fifthly, the wickedness of passive obedience to the king. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept led away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The third servant is called before the king. And he confesses that instead of investing the mina, he wrapped it up in a cloth and he put it away for safekeeping. Now, there's a bit of irony here in the original that is lost in translation, because the word there for handkerchief or cloth in the NIV or napkin, as the authorized version has it, is an actual reference to a sweat cloth. 
Um, and a sweat cloth in, uh, was kept by a workman uh, in the hot uh, Mediterranean sun as he was laboring to wipe away sweat, to wipe away blood if, the, if he accidentally hit himself uh, with his hammer. It was a, a multi-purpose cloth that was employed by someone working to wipe sweat away, to, to wipe blood away. And the implication here is that this man did nothing. He didn't invest the miner, but he put the sweat cloth, the thing that you would use when you were employed and when you were busy and when you were industrious, he, he wrapped the mine up in the sweat cloth and he hid it away too. He is unproductive. He is lazy. He did nothing. The king says in verse 23, why then did you not uh, put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest. That word for bank there is the word for bench. It's a reference to the money changers um, bench down in the, uh, in the marketplace and you would go and deposit money with them and he would pay you interest and then he would give out your money at a higher rate of interest making uh, a profit for himself. But this man can't even be bothered to go down to the marketplace and to make a deposit. He just hides it away. Now, the reason for his laziness is that he had no love or loyalty to the master. Look at verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. You are a severe man, a hard man, says the uh, NIV, an austere man, says the authorized version. A severe man. You see that his service or his lack of service and his loyalty or his lack of loyalty was out of fear. There was no love for the king. There was no diligent service to the king because he acts out of fear and renders his pathetic service grudgingly. You know, Paul and uh, Corinthians speaks about the, the love of God constrains us. Love of Christ constrains us, compels us. But there's no love. There's just fear. There's no service because there is no love. Now, the same was true of Archelaus. When he was away, there were those who opposed him and there were those who were loyal to him. But there were those who tried to remain neutral, tried to live with a foot in both camp. They were given responsibility, but they didn't do anything with uh, that responsibility in case they, they um, uh, antagonized the, growing, the people with, who had growing opposition uh, to Archelaus in Judea. They didn't work for Archelaus, and they didn't work against him. They did nothing. They tried to keep everybody happy. And when he returned, having secured the kingdom, he took all responsibility away from them, and he gave that responsibility to those who had been faithful. Now, this is where it gets a bit difficult to interpret the parable. If someone isn't faithful in this life, does it mean that they're not a Christian and there will be no reward for them in the next life? Does it mean that he will be rewarded less in the next life? Or does Jesus mean that in this life, if you're not faithful, responsibility will be taken away from you and entrusted, given to somebody else? I'm not sure. I think it's probably easier to take it to mean your rewards will be minimized in heaven. 
Turn with me just for a minute, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12, to one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each man has done. If the work that anyone has built on, uh, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, listen to this, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He will suffer loss. Now, how do you suffer loss in glory? Martin Lloyd-Jones believed it was that disappointed look of the Lord Jesus. You know, you remember when after Jesus' trial, he was led out and Peter was at the fire and we're told that Jesus looked at him. He just looked at him. That was some look because it caused Peter to go out and weep bitterly. There was, there was disappointment in the face of Jesus. I warned you. and You still have denied me. That glance of disappointment. Well, that's what Lloyd-Jones thinks this suffering loss will be in heaven. That sense that you could have done more. You remember the film Schindler's List at, at the end of that when, when the Jews are taken out of the factory and, and they're thanking him and they've taken all their gold teeth and they have molded it together, um, smelted it together into to, to a ring. And Schindler says, I, I could have done more. He takes out a silver um, cigarette case out of his pocket. He says, I could have sold this. This was maybe worth two more lives. And this car, I could have, I could have done more. I could have sold it. I could have, could have saved more. And I, th- I think that's it. I think that's the loss that we will experience, that sense that we could have done more. And, and perhaps that very loss will lead us to magnify the grace of God more, that in spite of our unfaithfulness, nevertheless, He has still saved us, but us passing through the flames. As I said, I don't want to be saved by the skin of my teeth. I don't want to be saved as one escaping through the flames. What I want you to notice is this, and I think we can speculate about what the loss is, but what I want you to notice is this. This man was passive. He did nothing. He kept his mind in the cloth. He wrapped it up for safekeeping. And yet Jesus calls him wicked, you wicked servant. That passive obedience, get this, is active wickedness. Passive obedience is active wickedness. Now, we don't think of sin in that way. We think of sin as something that we do, but sin is something that we don't do as well. The shorter catechism, question 14, what is sin? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. So, what you do. But it's any want of conformity to the law of God. It's what you feel to do. Sin is not what Uh, just what you do. It's what you don't do. Do you see that? This man did nothing. And his passive obedience was act of wickedness. It was rebellion against the king. Now, let me be blunt. Inactivity in the spiritual realm is sin. Prayerlessness is sin. 
Carelessness when it comes to witness is sin. Pew polishing, if we have pews, is sin. Failing to read and teach your children the Word of God is sin. Indifference to mission is sin. You see, your loyalty to Jesus and your love for Jesus will express itself in being interested in the things that interest Him. Doing nothing is active wickedness. Those subjects who try to have a foot in both camps, Archelaus and his enemies, and try to remain uh, neutral, ended up pleasing no one. Do you know what Jesus says of such people? You make me sick. You make me want to throw up. To the church in Laodicea, he says, Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Are you a wicked servant? Passive obedience, just going with the flow and doing nothing else is active wickedness. So here we have the delay in the return of the king, the responsibility given to the servants of the king, the opposition to the reign of the king, the reward for service to the king, the wickedness of passive obedience to the king. And then lastly, the punishment on those who rejected the king. Look at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. When Archelaus came back to Rome, what do you think he did with those who opposed him? The 50 who followed him to Rome to petition Caesar against his appointment. What do you think he did with those 50 when they returned back to Judea? He, well, the NIV says he killed them. The AV says he slayed them. ESV, he slaughtered them. Now, Jesus is making the very simple point that when he returns, he will judge the enemies of the kingdom. There is a terrible judgment waiting for the enemies of the king. Now you say to me, well, I'm not an enemy of King Jesus. I'm neither for him nor against him. Well, let me remind you what Jesus said. If you're not for me, you're against me. The unbeliever is at enmity with God, and there is a day coming when he will judge The enemies of the kingdom and the slaughter of the enemies of Archelaus will look like a teddy bear picnic in comparison to that judgment. Because this judgment will result in being banished from his presence and shut up in hell forever with the doomed and the damned. And you might say to me, well, you're trying to frighten me into the kingdom. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I don't don't want you to go to hell. And every Christian here doesn't want you to go to hell. And to be honest, I, I don't think you want to go to hell. But you need to understand that it's only by taking refuge under the reign of King Jesus that you will find deliverance from that judgment. It's only by coming to Him and trusting in Him and by believing in Him that you will find security when the king returns. Here you are on another Sunday, warned another time, and you're persistently refusing to receive that gospel invitation, to hearken to that gospel invitation. We will not have this man rule over us. I heard a story about a 
pilot in the M5 in England and in um, fog and ice one car crashed into the other and then another car and soon a pileup happened and one man he managed to stop his car in time and he put on his hazard lights but another car came and crashed in and another car crashed in and so he took the bollards from the side of the road and as a car was coming up he would actually throw the bollard at the car to warn them of the impending disaster well God's warning you how many warnings do you need you need to stop You need to acknowledge your sin before God and you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, this is what I want you to take away. The enemies who opposed the king were judged when the king returned. What a wonderful challenge to Christians and to non-Christians, this parable. It is the delay in the return of the king. He's, he's gone away, but he will come back. The responsibility given to the servants of the king. We as Christians have been entrusted with this, this gospel, the opposition to the reign of the king. There will always be opposition to uh, the kingdom in this world. The reward received for the service uh, to the king that when Jesus will, comes back, he will reward faithful service, the wickedness of passive obedience to the king, those people who tried to remain neutral and, and, and do nothing, they will lose out in some way when it comes uh, to reward. And the punishment on those who rejected the king, those enemies of the kingdom, there's going to be a day of reckoning. I would encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near because this, this is the time to get right with God because the king will come and the king will destroy his enemies. Amen.